0: So, this particular journey is coming to an end. I'm fond of the English word journey, partly because um, in that it's from French, it means a day, so it's, I guess it means uh, how far one goes in one day. So, your journey is complete, however far you go that day. Uh, there's no set distance that makes the journey but rather that you've completed the day. So I don't know how far your journey went this retreat but it's a, a journey. journey of what 13 days or something you don't have to get anywhere exactly um, but just go further. <laughs> it isn't so much like it isn't so much the where you to where you're gonna get to as it is the journey, as they say. Not the destination, but the journey. And so how you journey, how you engage, is really crucial to all this. And um One of the things you want to be very careful for with your involvement with Buddhism is that, uh, you know, Buddhism, the purpose of Buddhism is to bring suffering to an end, the cessation of suffering. You want to be careful you don't suffer because of Buddhism. (laughs) You know, that doesn't make any sense. So you have to kind of, but you have to monitor yourself for that purpose. And to monitor yourself is means you have to use yourself as the book of Buddhism. You have to u- use yourself as the reference point to understand the consequences of how you practice and how you live. It isn't a matter of going to some manual, the Buddhist manual. I suppose there is a book out there that I would... I would sp- maybe there's a book called the Buddhist manual. But I, I think if I was going to vote one title off the island, <laughs> <laughs> I think I would start with that one, the Buddhist manual. Because the manual's in you. And how do you find the manu- manual in you? You pay attention to suffering. Not to suffer better. But so you, get, you can gather the information you need to have to be able to find what is it that causes suffering? How do you cause suffering? How do you contribute to your, your suffering? And that's particularly true for um, how you practice, how you hold the practice, the journey, the Buddhism itself, is how you engage in it. Can you pay attention to that and notice that? Are you tight? Are you you know, zealot? Are you wrapped up in some way? Are you afraid? Are you striving? And I can't tell you how many people have had to suffer, probably more than a few of you, until you could figure out the how. And that's part of the journey is, maybe this is saying it coarsely, crudely, but part of the journey for almost everyone, is in fact to suffer because of how you engage in Buddhism. I don't know if that's a mistake, because what it is is an expression of probably how you would get enge- engage in other endeavors in life as well. But here, there's this mirror. Here, supposedly, there's a self-correcting process where you're you're using yourself, you're studying yourself, you're finding what is this like. How is this for me? And hopefully with time you learn, oh, if I push, if I strive, if I cling, if I caught up in fear, conceit as I do this, it doesn't work, it hurts. So one of the things in Buddhism I think that helps is don't be afraid to suffer. But don't just keep suffering. Don't be afraid to suffer because you want to learn from that. You want to be, pay, pay attention to that, how is it? And so the how, how we are is important. In the end, one of the things we're looking for, at least in teachings of the Buddha, is to become independent in the Dharma. It's a beautiful expression. Not dependent on anybody else in the Dharma. To use, be able to use yourself as the Buddha said near the end of his life, to make yourself a refuge, to make yourself an island. It's, you know, and if you go through all these voluminous suttas that are attributed to the Buddha, I haven't found anywhere yet where the Buddha tells anyone to go for refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. He seems to go along with the fact that people do it he doesn't he doesn't complain or s- tell him to stop it, so there's a kind of implicit acceptance of that practice. but when he gives instruction about refuge, he says "You should make yourself your own refuge and how but how can you know How can you make yourself your own refuge unless you know something? If you've read yourself, studied yourself, learned from yourself how to make it safe in here for yourself. How do you make it safe inside here for yourself? And then the Buddha said, then he said, how does one make one's self, one's own refuge? (coughs) Mindfulness. He specifically says the four foundations of mindfulness, but mindfulness. Mindfulness is a capacity to be aware, maybe self-reflectively aware, to use oneself as one's own teacher, to find out what am I doing here. So in this process, in this journey that we've had this these days has been anapana sati, the awareness of breathing in and breathing out. It's, everyone who's alive is doing it. We all have this in common, breathing in, breathing out. It's such a completely ordinary part of human life that, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's, maybe it's taken for granted. It turns out that bringing attention, being aware of breathing is probably, the most common form of meditation in all of Buddhism. There are many, many, many forms of meditation to practice, but probably the one that's most commonly taught in the different Buddhist traditions, meditation traditions, is mindfulness of breathing. Was the Buddha's practice before and after his awakening? I don't think we have any other Descriptions and suttas of what the Buddha actually practiced, like in terms of a technique or a way. Often he's described as practicing the jhanas, but that's not the technique, that's the result of practicing, the consequence, which can come from anapanasati. It's the practice he taught his son. You know, it's a you know, if that's what he, was that the legacy he wanted to give his son? And it's probably mm-hmm. something we should pay, pay attention to. The great uh, Theravada teacher Buddha Gosha, in his great manual for meditation, Visuddhimagga, he lists 40 different subjects for meditation, 40 different kinds of meditation. And he specifies how the different ones are suitable for different situations, different personalities, different things. But he says there are two meditation practices that are universally good, good in all circumstances, for all people. I don't think he'd come to modern America yet, but (laughs) we're a little bit more complicated here, it seems to me. But but, at least in, in his little world, he said two that are universally applicable Um, mindfulness of breathing and mindfulness of death that somehow something about mindfulness of breathing he said it's always useful and the reason it isn't always useful here in America or in the modern world at least the world I'm familiar with, we have people who have sometimes complicated relationships with their breathing. I've known people who almost um, drowned and suffering. Breathing is a big deal. I've known people who have asthma and there's complications around breathing. So there's other th- reasons why around breathing gets complicated. So you know it's I don't know if it's completely universal like he says but it's you know there are exceptions but it's pretty useful. The teacher, one of the teachers I studied with in Japan, Zen teacher in Japan, said that uh, everything you need to know about Buddhism can be discovered through mindfulness of breathing, focusing on the breath, that effective. In the suttas the Buddha says that uh, mindfulness, if someone really practices mindfulness of breathing, they will not shake or tremble while they meditate. He also said that um, when one does mindfulness of breathing, one's body does not get fatigued one's eyes does not get fatigued. And the way I understand this is that um, is this is this process of anapanasati. Uh, I've certainly gotten fatigued, I've certain, certainly trembled myself, shook, shaken a little bit from my focus on the breathing. But that's usually when my attention is not uh, in the body, and the body's not soft and relaxed, where I've gotten tight with my attention. And, and gotten tight in my body, trying to focus, trying to get concentrated. But part of the brilliance of Anapanasati is the way in which it's included is mindfulness of the body, the broad body, feeling the body, feeling the bodily formations, and then keeping the body relaxed, tuning into the body, using the body as, again, the book that we study, and to keep the body soft that's one of the one of the protections from undue suffering and distress is to stay connected to the body and keep it keep it soft keep it relaxed don't allow tension in the body to build up based on how we're practicing and if tension is building then make that the subject of attention don't ignore that practice with it the people I've seen who have ended up in various kinds of trouble with their concentration practice uh, tend to be disconnected from their body. They tend to focus in some narrow way, and and they sometimes use tension as a way to get concentrated. But that concentration is not so useful. It's not so safe to build up tension and stress and things like that. So it's this brilliance of feeling the body, being with the body, breathing in and out. Um, this rhythm I think of it as a massage of the body in and out uh, keeping us from getting caught up or it's like the yoga teachers you know it seems that the yoga classes I've been to it seems a liturgy um, that because they say it so many times over and over again remember to breathe because when people do yoga, they sometimes hold their breath. Remember to breathe, don't hold your breath. So it's like, kind of, remember to breathe, relax, open. And then also an anapanasati is paying attention to the mind, the mental formations. That's also brilliant. Uh, this kind of turning attention around. So the mind looks at the mind, mind awareness looks at its, the quality, the activity, the constructs of the mind. And not so much to analyze them and think brilliant thoughts, but to relax them, to soften and relax. Turns out, for the sake of profound wisdom in Buddhism, you don't need profound thoughts. <laughs> and. Um, I don't know, maybe some of you are disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, so one of the definitions in the suttas of profound, penetrating panya, wisdom. (coughs) So get your notebooks out, get ready, here it comes. Is to see the arising and passing of phenomena. <coughs> you know, I'm sure if you go to a party and they say, you know what, you know, you're a Buddhist, you're a Buddhist practitioner, and well, can you give me some, you know, some Buddhist profundi- profundity, or tell me something really significant, important in Buddhism. Oh yeah, I'm happy to do that. There are things arise and they pass. <laughs> 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 oh. <laughs> that's all you got?" And you feel kind of embarrassed, well I'm sorry, but <laughs> you can say, well yeah, I'm sorry, but you know, we're the lesser vehicle. We, 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 we don't have much. <laughs> so, but this brilliance of Anapanasati, of t- turning the reflection, the mind back on itself, to see what's, what's it like in there? Is, it, is there suffering? Is there contraction, tightness, and, and then a simple thing, to relax it. It took me a long time in doing Buddhist practice to discover that I was allowed to relax. I had done Zen practice for many years, and Zen practice, you just did it. You were just like, it was it. You just sit, just there. You weren't supposed to do anything or attain anything. And I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> and, um, but I didn't think you know, I was allowed to change anything, just. So, to relax. When I was at the Zen monastery, I was assigned to be the gardener. And that uh, prompted me to do some reflection about how I was meditating, how I was doing Zen practice. Because part of my job as a gardener was to pull the weeds. and I would would pull the weeds and and I'm pulling the weeds so the plants can grow if I do, if I'm allowed to do this for the garden, isn't it okay to pull the weeds in my mind? I mean, isn't that the most natural thing? So I had anger, and so then I start looking at my anger and say, "Wait a minute, am I just supposed to just sit here and be angry? I wonder, if can I? Am I allowed to?" not be angry, or pull it out, or let go of it, or do something with it. So it took a while for me to kind of understand that, that it was okay, within reason, to do a little bit of inner house cleaning. And in this Anapanasati, it's again, it's pretty simple stuff. It says, relax the mental formations. So it's not a complicated analysis, it's not a big project it's I think it's brilliant that it's kept so simple just relax again at the party and say what do you do as a Buddhist do I relax (laughs) 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 I mean it I don't think they'd hear it properly you know they wouldn't understand how profound it is because maybe you understand now sitting here for these days that when the attention is really sensitive and you really sense and feel the subtlety of the mind or the, the at the base of the mind or you know or how you know it's kind of like at the foundation of how we operate in the world that how it's actually quite a significant thing to soften these mental constructs that have this power to drive us and push us around and grab us by the throat and Get us to say things we regret later, or do things we regret. Just so it's actually quite significant to kind of settle back, to relax back into what I consider a deeper mind. It's kind of like relaxing away, or relaxing from the surface mind, the surface mind where things are a little bit shallow, reactive, where we're kind of so triggered by all the things that come our way and that happened and, and uh, the um, so um, but to drop into the deep mind here and that deep mind there's a whole different way of being in the world that it arises bubbles up and arises out of being settled being open, being kind of connected, something come comes out from, I like to think of it as the depths of the body because it's so important to be in the body. I don't think we can access the depths of who we are without being embodied and present here. And then to see how this embodied world, this deep place is a place that's not only trustable, but is onward leading, that guides us and leads us further Deeper into itself. There are some teachings in um, the suttas uh, where they um, uh, they, uh, they talk about a variety of questions around phenomena and things. And then it says, one of the questions is, What's the heartwood of all things? So, what's the essence of the word? So w- word can mean essence. What's the essence of all things? So, so that's a pretty profound question. And the answer is liberation. So that's kind of a little koan. Liberation is the essence of all things. In Chinese Buddhism they have the saying that liberation beckons us within all things. in all things they say come here be free <laughs> what is it so i don't know quite how to understand it except that i feel that uh, in this deep mind this deep heart this core within us the heart within us that we've settled into it knows something about the path to freedom it's kind of it's oriented that way it's the direction it wants to go because it's a lot of work not to be free turns out you have to work at it. you have to apply effort and energy of clinging and holding and resisting and doing and and, like, and conceit I mean conceit takes so much energy so one of the one of the more reductionalistic explanations for why there's this movement or essence of liberation that we want to, that the system wants to go to is we want a vacation. <laughs> You know, sooner or later, it's nice to take a break from, you know, from clinging. Buddhism is the, you know, if we sign up for Buddhism, we join the union, and they say it's time for vacation. Because otherwise, we're working seven, you know, 24-7, right? Clinging 24-7. So this movement towards release, to freedom. I kind of that's my kind of sense is it's, it's innate in the in a deep mind or in the core in the heartwood of who we are <coughs> so i've been doing this breathing thing for over 40 years and i found it phenomenally useful for me and one of the values for me is not just in meditation but it's a little bit second nature for me to pay attention to my breathing periodically as I go about my life. And one of the things I pay attention to notice is when I'm holding my breathing. It's fascinating to watch your breathing in ordinary life because it's constantly changing and shifting. And it's appropriate because I guess the system knows you need more oxygen or less oxygen or need to respond to life in different ways. It the whole breathing apparatus shifts and changes in all a variety of ways. And, um, and so there's a feedback system with our breathing. If we find ourselves emotionally f- caught up in something or angry or afraid or, or attached to something, it sometimes is expressed in the breathing and the breathing gets held or gets tight or some part of, some part of the stomach gets held or the chest gets collapsed or something. And if we notice that, uh, sometimes just noticing it is enough to release it. Or we can do it intentionally, we start breathing, massaging, being with it, feeling it. And then if it's, perhaps it loosens up and lightens up. And then we can be present without that contraction, without that holding. And it's part of the protective system. This is why again mindfulness and mindfulness of breathing is a protection refuge because it teaches us how we have gotten caught. It shows us it reminds us it gives us the, the clue but if you're not in your body and not paying attention to your body then the clues that the body can offer are not available. So in the course of daily life to just check in driving along coming to a red light um, check in with your breathing. chances are, that, whatever alternative you have in mind to do at that point, might not be as good. You know, but if you have something better to do, it's okay. But check in. And it doesn't take long to check into the breathing. In fact, this idea of the peripheral vision uh, is a very uh, useful concept that we can be doing t- two things at once, kind of. We can be doing a primary thing. But it's possible to have a peripheral vision that takes in, for example, the body. How does it feel to be here? What's happening here with me when I'm doing this? And in order to have a peripheral vision that takes in the physical sense of being here, this attention has to have some kind of, has to be a little bit relaxed, a little bit open. If we fixate too much on something, we, the peripheral vision can't operate so well. Now, if you're fixating on driving, you're driving in some difficult place, and you have to really pay attention. It's probably just as well that you don't look at your breathing, if you know if it's really really hairy. But um, uh, sometimes, what we get fixated on in ordinary life, is not actually what we're doing, or the person we're talking to, or we're actually fixating on some part of our inner life, our attachments, our fears, our concerns. And as we get fixated on that, we limit, we narrow the field of awareness to that preoccupation. But if we can kind of be open enough with attention, relaxed enough to keep the peripheral attention open So whatever we're doing, we're kind of checking in, we kind of know a little bit what's happening with the breathing, with the body. And then the breathing can be your companion, your support. Breathe. Relax. Settle back. Not to just be like super chilled and uninterested in what's happening, but to be soft enough, relaxed enough that you can engage maybe in a healthier way or more animated way or fuller way with what you're doing. So to develop a habit in daily life of checking in with your body, checking in on your breathing, how is it? I find it been invaluable for me as I go through my life. And the, um, so as I said, it's kind of become second nature for me to just, just a light touch, just, oh, I don't even think about it sometimes, just, oh, my breathing. How is it? And then uh, part of the other thing that I want to highlight about Anapanasati, which I did a little bit yesterday, but. Um, maybe say it in a different way <clears throat> that um, in terms of the mindfulness part or the, the awareness part of anapanasati, the, the way that awareness is engaged in this practice, there are th- actually three verbs, three activities. There's knowing, there's experiencing, and there's observing. And so at different times we will find it's useful to do different ones. The knowing is an act of recognition. So it's a little more active. It's, it maybe involves like uh, using words in the mind. Long for a long breath. Short for a short breath. Contracted. Tight. Soft. Loose. Shallow. Deep. You know, it's, some, it's a kind of. It's a, there's enough recognition that maybe you don't actively use those words in your, your mind, but there's enough rec- clear recognition and somehow get registered in the mind that, that if two minutes, you know, a minute later, a few seconds later, someone asks you, "Who was that breath like?" You can answer in using words because you were somehow you knew it that kind of way. Experiencing is, um, I think of experiencing uh, as feeling more. Uh, not feeling in terms of emotions, but sensing, that kind of feeling. Something that's embodied. We experience with our whole body. And there's an intimacy with it. And, um, and it's not, n- no, it's not the, the kind of little bit removed aspect of recognition. There's an intimacy to experiencing. And the language that uh, the Buddha used for this (coughs) was a language having to do with touch. Touching. Touching these different states. Touching the experience of the moment. (coughs) Almost tactile experience. (coughs) Allowing yourself to experience it and feel it. (coughs) Like the example I used earlier of (coughs) on a cool day, standing outside in this In the sun and allowing the sun or taking in to register feel the warmth of the sunlight as it penetrates your clothes and into your skin ah how nice that's experiencing it there might be recognition as well but the recognition is not as satisfying as the feeling experiencing so to experience what's happening means an intimacy a closeness not not so removed from our experience, and then there's observing, and observing. <clears throat> uh, as I kind of relate to this idea,s concept. It isn't that there's an observer who's doing the looking, and there isn't you know exactly like a removed feeling, but is recognizing the distinction between an experience and the awareness of the experience. This distinction is very helpful in practice. The deeper wisdom of Buddhism, the deeper movement towards liberation, really begins to uh, open up when the mind, when the practice itself begins showing you, not because you're looking for it, but it's shown to you, that there is in fact a distinction between whatever the experience is and the awareness of it, the clear kind of knowing of the experience. Maybe not as full as recognition, but kind of can really see or be with the unfolding experience and part of the reason why it's so useful to have that distinction between the object and the knowing of it is that what's uh, dropped away from the between them is the concepts that we use to label them or to name them or see them and then that allows us to see that things the experience of things is actually quite fleeting impermanent and, and constant and that's interesting enough. But once you make a distinction and see that the uh, no awareness is separate, then this magic can happen. We realize that the awareness itself is also impermanent and changing. But then what? Where are you? If every, if, if what you're aware of is changing and and the awareness is always impermanent and and you need to be someplace <laughs> in that. You know, to take a stand or kind of be, you know, you have to kind of be around long enough to say, this is me, but it's not there. And then the mind relaxes more and more deeply. And it's more of this movement towards health, to maturity, you becoming independent in the Dharma to understand this whole process, to understand the process of holding on and clinging and, and um, conceiving that we do, and move towards less and less suffering. It's a movement towards happiness and to peace. I think that in the suttas, the most common ways the Buddha talked about The emotional state of someone who is liberated is to say that they were happy and they were peaceful. Happy and peaceful. So I thought I'd read to you this um, poem from the suttas attributed to the Buddha and it's kind of a um, I I read it as as kind of a joyous celebration of uh, liberated people. And it refers to Arhats. So Arhats are the people who are fully liberated. Happy indeed are the Arhats. No craving is found in them. Cut off is the conceit, I am. Burst apart is the net of delusion. Delusion is a net because we get caught in it. They have reached the unruffled, mi- unruffled state. Lucid are their minds. They are in the world unstained. They are the divine ones without taints. They are the natural sons and daughters of the Buddha. Endowed with the seven jewels, trained in the threefold training, those great heroes wander around with fear and trembling abandoned no, tra- no craving can be found in them. In the heartwood of the holy life, they no longer depend on others. In the essence of the practice, they no longer depend on others. Above, all around, and below, enchantment is no more found in them. They boldly sound their lion's roar. The enlightened are supreme in the world. Happy indeed are the arts. in the heartwood of the holy life, the heartwood of the practice life. Say, and I love this word heartwood, Sara. Our breathing can arise out of our heartwood out of what's as essence inside, in a sense, or the core inside. And to have the breathing be part of that core, part of that heartwood, part of the deep mind or the deep heart. The breathing can, is kind of a way of connecting the deep heart and our active life, our embodied life in the world. It's hard to stay connected to our inner sense of well-being, or peace, or stability, or the inner home, the inner refuge we can have. But breathing is the part that can be the bridge. To f- to sense, to take the time, or to settle back and let the breathing begin and end, or come out of something that's core and essential inside of us. Not to lose touch with it, but to breathe and feel it come and go and come up into our embodied life and return and this exchange, this movement back and forth. Mindfulness of breathing. So I hope that um, this retreat has given you a little bit more appreciation of the value of breathing, uh, of mindfulness of breathing. Uh, so I also hope that it uh, you see its value in being your companion, or for you to be a companion for your breathing. And I hope that um, you keep breathing. Okay. and keep breathing mindfully, and that that you continue on your journey, a journey that's complete to each day, that journey, that was that day's journey. But there is a journey, there's an onward leading, there is a growth, there is a development, there is a, because all things change, I mean that's kind of core to Buddhism, everything's changing, But you could have a role, you can, you can have a role, you can play a role in how things change. You're not, we're not a passive victim for how things change and unfold over time. The natural growth, the natural movement towards happiness and freedom, towards unhappiness and bondage, we have a role to play. We can't cause one or the other but we create the conditions for it. And one great condition is to come on retreat and breathe mindfully. Learning these steps of Anapanasati Learning to recognize these different aspects in your experience as they're happening and knowing where to bring your attention in regard to them so that your breathing, yourself, your life becomes the manual of Buddhism, the Buddhist manual. And perhaps you can retire some of your books. And finally, I'll say that um, <clears throat> I think it's good, maybe essential, to have companions on the journey. I know that's been my case, that it was good for me, and maybe essential for me to have companions along the journey, the f- practice. And for these days here at this retreat, I'm grateful to have it, all of you as my companion, my journey my practice here my involvement with my anapanasati practice here in this retreat and and being able to share this with you and it's a wonderful thing and uh, i feel very fortunate to been able to do this these two weeks with you and and this idea that we're companions on the journey we're all all moving ahead finding our way it's a great journey to do together So I thank you for the companionship and your practice and dedication. And I hope that um, this conspiracy continues. (laughs) Thank you.